So today we're in Luke chapter 7, we're working through verses 18 through uh, 35, and I kind of assumed I wouldn't get through all those verses uh, during the first service, and now I'm convinced I won't be getting through all of those verses, we'll, but we'll make it most of the way through, uh, and we'll have to pick up again next week. But if, uh, if you want to follow along, it's on page 863 of the Bibles that are in the chairs. If you don't have a copy of the Bible, if you don't have your own Bible, we long for you to be uh, ex- or have access to God's Word, and so we'd encourage you to take that with you, uh, mark it up, make it yours. Um, and just read and study the word. And since we've moved out of Luke chapter 6 and, and been working now in Luke chapter 7, I've been telling you that, that we're getting to see Jesus exemplify or live out the very things that he had been preaching in his sermon at the end of Luke chapter 6. And we're getting to see him put into practice the things that he called his people to do. And, and, and I'll continue to do that, but more than that, we're not just building out of his sermon. We're building to a very important question that we're actually going to come to today, a very important point that Luke has been preparing us for in this question that John the Baptist is going to ask. Are you the one who is to come? You see, Luke has been prepping us and preparing us to hear the answer to this question. He's been making us ready for it, but not just in these most recent weeks. He's been making us ready to hear that question asked and answered since he started writing. This is the very purpose for which he wrote this gospel account. He told Theophilus, I want you to be certain of the things that you have been taught. I want you to be confident in them. And so then he begins by, by building out the, the birth narrative. And the reality is, I mean, we take it the birth narrative, we take the the events surrounding Jesus' birth, we take them and we co-opt them and we, we, we prop up a holiday with them, but that is not why Luke wrote them. He did not write them so that at the end of a year we could have a holiday to, to kind of prep us and prepare us for the, the coming year. He wrote these so that we might be certain that Jesus is the Christ. And so we studied those outside of Christmas and we're able to see the certainty or the confidence that comes in Christ being who he is and really even John the Baptist being the forerunner or being uh, alongside that, uh, being the fulfillment of prophecy before the Christ is born. But then he didn't stop at the birth narrative. He didn't stop at those events. He continued to teach. And so he moves from the birth narrative to Jesus' public ministry. And we get to see Jesus, <clears throat> excuse me, Jesus preaching and teaching and working powerful miracles. And we have seen this repeatedly all the way through Luke to the point that we're at today, where even specifically... In these last two weeks, we have been shown by Luke that Jesus is worthy of our faith. Not part of our faith, not not a glimpse of our faith. He is worthy of our whole faith. And he showed that to us in healing a centurion's son without ever looking at him, without ever putting eyes on him, without having to touch him. But by his very word, he healed the sick. And then he showed us, Luke shows us, that Jesus is the source of hope. He is our only source of hope. All other sources of hope will fall flat. They don't have the power. They don't have the position. They don't have the prominence that that Jesus has or the promise that Jesus has. He is our only source of hope. And he proved that to us by, 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 by sharing with us the story of the widow who had a son who had been killed. And Jesus called that boy back to life. He raised him from the dead. He is our hope. And today, as we jump right in, we're not going to spend any more time talking about this. We're just going to jump right into the text. The, the thing is, we're going to look at faith and hope, but we're going to look at it from a different perspective. It's like we're going to stand on the other side of faith and hope and look at it from the perspective of doubt. Something we all deal with, something real and true in our hearts and lives. It's the truth that we just do but I want to give you the main point, and then we're going to dump, jump into the text. The main point that we're seeking to, I'm seeking to build out for you today that is in Jesus, we find every reason to believe that our doubts in him are doubtable. Like our doubts in Christ, our doubts in who he is and what he's come to do and what he's promised about us, the doubts that we have in these circumstances because we doubt him, they are doubtable. They are worthy to be doubted, and he is worthy to be trusted. It's a radically different perspective than we typically take in our lives. We typically doubt things based on our own perspective and our own experience and the, what, the things we think and the things we believe. But I think we can readily admit that we're limited beings, limited creatures, and we, don't, we, we really can't see past the nose on the front of our face about what's to come. 
but he's worthy to be trusted. Our doubts are worthy of doubt. So let's begin reading verse 18. We'll just begin working our way through the passage. The disciples of John, that's John the Baptist, not the apostle John. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. What did they report to him? Well, they reported all the things that they were seeing. They reported all the things that Luke has been reporting to us. They they went to John and and reported these things to him. The sermon, they probably heard it. The the miracles, they'd seen them. And they'd probably heard about ones that they hadn't seen. The disciples of John reported all these things to him. And John, calling two disciples to him, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, when the men had come to Jesus, that's who they'd gone to see. When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? We're going to stop right there. We've got a a lot of work to do in these two verses to build out the whole understanding of what's going on. The last time we heard about John the Baptist, he had been arrested. He had made Herod mad. Herod was not a good guy. He was not a nice king or or a nice ruler. He was the tetrarch of the area that, that they were in. And He was not a good person. Uh, John the Baptist had confronted him of his immorality. He had confronted him on his sin. Herod was with Herodias. That's a woman. Herodias was the wife of his brother and had left his brother. And they ended up married. And there was this whole mess of stuff going on in Herod's life. And John calls him on it. And it ticks off Herod. And Herod's like, well, you know what? I don't want to deal with you. So I put you into, I'm going to put you in prison. And he would have killed him. The Bible tells us he would have killed him if he could have gotten away with it, but he didn't kill him because he was afraid of what the people would say and do. The people saw John the Baptist as a prophet sent from God, and they and they he was they were sorry, Herod was certain. If he killed John the Baptist, there would be an uproar, and that's not what he wanted to deal with. So rather than deal with the trouble, he just tucks him away, out of sight, out of mind, puts him in prison so he doesn't have to deal with him. The next thing you need to think about is that John the Baptist, I mean, we see, we're meeting not just John the Baptist, but his followers. John the Baptist had accumulated great influence in Israel, in Judea, in, in the surrounding region. People from all over Israel, he had followers, tens of thousands of followers who would come to hear him teach and preach, and they would come to be baptized by him, that, that they were, this was a massive deal. He was, he was like the, the original, he, he was the original Mega church pastor kind of thing. I mean, like he was there preaching and teaching, baptizing thousands of people. That's what he was, he was raised up by God to do, and that's what he did. And when he got arrested, his followers had a choice to make. What are we going to do? Are we going to follow Christ, or are we going to go see what Christ is about? Are we going to believe that John was right when saying he's saying things like, hey, i got to become less, and he's got to become more? What, what do we do? Well, here we get a glimpse that these followers began to follow Christ. Not necessarily because they were believing, but at least to some degree they were checking him out. They were beginning to discern, is this the man that John said he was? And so they're thinking about it. They're, they're working it out. They're following Christ. And we don't know how many of those followers, maybe many, maybe some, we, we don't know. But we know that his followers turned to Jesus and began to, to at least investigate him as trustworthy as the man that John had said he would be. And they see the things that Jesus is doing. And they go to John the Baptist and they tell him. And I would imagine, I'm just guessing, because if you see a dead person come back to life, I don't think that, I don't think the immediate response is, I think that's celebration, right? I mean, like, you're going to throw a party. And so I think they go to John probably with this attitude of celebration. Man, you're not going to believe what this guy is doing. You were, you, were prob- you, were, you were right. I mean, there's so many things that are happening. His teaching is amazing. His, his miracles are full of power. He's doing some crazy stuff. John, I wish you could see it. But John responds not in celebration, but a question. Hey, you two, go check and see if he's the one to come. Like in this question, uh, there is something about John that's unveiled that we need to realize, that we, we need to see it. See, in this question, John unveils that he is the original doubting Thomas. Before Thomas had a chance to doubt in the resurrection, John was doubting that Jesus was even the Messiah. Are you the one to come or should we be expecting another 
should we be looking for somebody else? So this is a big deal. Not, not because John was in prison, but because of who John was. And we don't have time to go back and look at it all, but, but you go back and you read Luke 1 through 2 and you begin to see John being used and purposefully chosen and even born for great purpose. Like John was a miracle baby in his own right. Zacharias and Elizabeth were, were unable. They were beyond childbearing years. Elizabeth had been barren her whole life. They, he, John was going to be the only child born to them. His conception was prophesied by none other than the angel Gabriel. Like Gabriel shows up in the temple where Zacharias is doing his duty. He's like, hey, you're going to have a kid. Zacharias is like, what? But it wasn't just his conception that was prophesied by Gabriel. Gabriel told Zacharias what what he was going to do. His life was prophesied by Gabriel as a, as a fulfillment of prophecy that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. Like, I mean, we're talking about several levels of inception going on here, like, like dreams of dreams within dreams, right? This is prophecy about prophecy to be fulfillment of prophecy. This is a big deal. When God quit speaking in the Old Testament, the prophecy was that one would come as a forerunner of the Christ. And the first words he speaks or the first words we hear from God in the New Testament are those of Gabriel telling Zacharias that they were going to have a child. It's a big, because of who John the Baptist was, before he was born, he was anointed by the Holy Spirit and affirmed Jesus' identity. Before he left the womb, he showed that Jesus was the Christ. After he was born, he was the one that when they asked him, are you the Messiah? He said, I'm not even worthy to tie his sandals. He was the one in in John's gospel account. He was the one when he saw Jesus walking by. He was out ministering, preaching, teaching, baptizing people. He sees Jesus walking by and he says, the lamb of God who's come to take away the sin of the world. He identified him by his own testimony. And he identified him as he baptized Jesus, I mean, he was the man who baptized Jesus. Jesus comes to him and he's like, hey, you need to baptize me. And John's like, whoa, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, no, this is the way it should be now. And when he does, the heavens open up. God speaks and says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. The spirit descends in physical form on Jesus. John sees that. This is what he's been waiting for. And he sees it and recognizes that Jesus is the Christ. And here he is now. Here he is now. We don't know how much longer, how much time passed But here he is now in prison, maybe a year, maybe a little more. And he's doubting. This is huge. Extremely significant in the whole scheme of the gospel. See, if John the Baptist is prone to doubt, if John the Baptist, the man who he was, if John the Baptist is prone to doubt, we should quit putting on a front. We should quit putting on a show and and, and quit acting like we aren't prone to doubt. To doubt. You don't have to have all the answers. In fact, let me just free you of the the expectation that you're supposed to know it all and be able to tell everyone that you never have any trouble or struggle in your faith. We all doubt. We can breathe a sigh of relief. There's no, no, no real shame. In that. And so today, what, what I want us to do as we work through this is I, I want us to understand why we doubt. And there's going to be moments of conviction. I'm not going to lie about that. But I'm not trying to shame you. We just need to deal with it honestly. Why do we doubt? And, and, and I want to free you to recognize that I, I just want to empower you and encourage you that, that just because we doubt doesn't de- defame Christ, doesn't defame us. It, it's not, a, it's not, a, it's not a, a horrific and horrible thing. We can be open and honest about our doubt. And that once we get to that place of understanding why we doubt and then being free to talk about our doubt, being free to admit and confess our doubt, that we can actually begin to do something about our doubt. And so my hope is is that you walk out of here knowing how to undo, how to defeat the doubt that plagues us. So, why do we doubt? See, 
John, there's a reason we can see in the text that John's doubting. And his circumstances are different, and, and probably even some of the ways that doubt played itself out in his life were different, but I think that there's some things that are, that are similar to the reasons that we doubt. And so I'm going to give you, I think I could give you more than this, but I'm going to give you three, because otherwise you'd probably get up and leave, and, and I wouldn't get to finish the sermon. So I wanna, I'm going to give you three uh, that I think are basic to who we are. First, we doubt, one of the reasons we doubt, personal view of Jesus' mission. Go back and look at what John the Baptist was preaching and teaching. Go back and look about the Christ that he was proclaiming and prophesying. He was prophesying a Christ that was coming to judge. Like he was talking about the axe that's at the root of the trees. He's talking about a Christ that's coming to confront people in their sin. Don't think it didn't sit on John that he's talking about a Christ that sits as a judge and he's the one facing judgment. Don't think that it didn't occur to John that he was talking about being, people being cut down and he's the one facing being cut down. We don't like to talk about this Jesus very much. In fact, it's not the Jesus we promote in our popular culture. It's not the Jesus we think that's appealing to the, to the world at large. But this was the Jesus that, that John was called to preach and proclaim about. And to deny that it's a part of what Jesus' mission would be is mistaken. Because there is a time in which our suffering Savior, Savior will return in his kingdom as a ruling Lord. And in Revelation nineteen eleven, it tells us that in righteousness he will come and judge and wage war. That's probably not how you're evangelizing people out there though, right? So like John, well, well, let me just deal with this first. So, so John is preaching of this Christ that's coming in the end. He's missing what Christ is coming to do in the interim. And he hears these stories about mercy and compassion. He's like, wait, wait, wait. He's not doing what I thought he was going to do. See, like John, our doubts in Jesus are not caused. They are not caused by Jesus' failure to accomplish his own plans, but in him not fulfilling ours. You've got expectations of Christ, right? I mean, we all do. We, We expect him to perform in a certain way. We expect that because we're believers, we'll get a certain thing from him. We expect that he is going to accomplish certain things in our lives. But what are we promised We are promised that we will be saved and when he shows up that we will be saved. We are promised that we, if we endure, we will be saved. Even in that promise, there's a recognition that this life will be difficult. We are promised that like Christ, we will be hated. We are promised that we will endure hardship, but we are promised that we have hope because not only has he come and endured hardship, but he has overcome. So we are promised all kinds of things, but but we face doubt because that's not the parts of the promise that we think about. You see, we've got expectations of Christ and we long for him to do the things we expect him to do. But brothers and sisters, Jesus did not come to accomplish your mission. He did not come to accomplish the very things that you want him to do. He came to accomplish the mission of his father and he actually came and he calls you not to your own mission, but he calls you into his. He blesses us with calling us into being a part of accomplishing his mission. So now here we are, we we can face it, we can deal with it, or we can humbly step in to follow him. But is your doubt in some way Finding its root, finding its, finding its stem planted in your own desires and expectations of Christ rather than what he's promised he will do. Personal, personal uh, views of Jesus' mission cause us to doubt. Personal distance from Jesus' mission cause us to doubt. 
John had been deeply involved. He'd been intimately involved. Like, I mean, you go back and you can see he was intimately involved in the mission of Christ, in the pronouncement of the coming Christ, in identifying Christ. He was there, saw it with his own eyes, experienced it, knew it in his own heart. Now he's tucked away in this prison, distant, unable to see it with him, with his own eyes, unable to experience it, unable to get any closer than what he is. I just wonder, I, I, I can't solve this. I, I, I just wonder that if, if John had been able to watch Jesus more closely, if he hadn't been arrested and stuck away in that prison for, for who knows how long, I just wonder if his attitude that Jesus must increase and that he must decrease might never have diminished. I mean, even when you, when you think about this, even when you think about this, think about the reasons that he might have been imprisoned. He was a man of great influence. He was, he was a man who had a huge following. What might have God's purpose been in having John arrested except turning people's attention from him to the glory of his son? But John is found doubting. Well, see, unlike John, most of us aren't kept at distance from God. We are not stuck away in a prison where he is not accessible to us. We are not stuck away in a place where we can't engage him. Our doubts in Jesus are not caused by him being inaccessible, but rather our own lack of engagement. This gets really personal when you stop and think about it. This is not that Jesus is that far away from you. It's not that Jesus has not made himself available to you. But so often we choose not to engage Jesus and we got something else going. Listen, this is why I'm, I want you to hear this. This is why I and the rest of the pastors here at your church desire you to be attending on Sunday mornings and attending community groups throughout the week. We know your proximity to the mission of God is going to be among the people of God. And we recognize that it is important that you might deal with doubt. But more than you just attending, we desire your participation. We desire your active participation because it's in your participation that we recognize you move beyond being a spectator of God's power to learning and experiencing being a conduit of that power unto others. You see, you experience his grace and his mercy and his, and his love more fully when you are able to extend it, when you're able to actively receive it from him through his people and give it away. That's where your good is. That's where your blessing is. That's where he has determined that he's going to work is in and among and through his people. If you are making yourself distant from your people, we know, we understand, we see it happening in the lives of people all the time. When you're distant from his people, you are distant from him. And we long for you to experience the fullness of the blessing of God. So we build out opportunities not because they serve us, but because we know they serve you. And so we call you to serve in Kidsway. We ask you to serve on a hospitality team. We ask you to, to, to uh, be involved in a community group. We ask you to, to come and hand out flyers across a neighborhood and bring your kids and involve them in it. Not because it makes us look good. Not because it makes us feel good. Because we know that the proximity to God's mission is vitally important for you. And the mission is being fulfilled where God's people are. There's a, a, an illustration of a pastor. This, this is accredited to D.L. Moody, but I, I found it in so many different places that, that I'm not sure that it was really D.L. Moody. But there was, a, there was a, a, an illustration that he either gave or lived out um, there was a, 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 a parishioner, a church uh, member that had become distant from the church and had quit showing up and quit being a part and quit actively taking part. And so he goes to visit with this person and he says he doesn't say a word, that he is invited in, he sits down and, 
in front of the fire, and he looks at the fire, and as he watches the fire, he, he, he steps over to it, and from within it, with a pair of tongs, he pulls out a burning ember, and he sets it on the hearth, and then sits down without saying a word, and just watches that ember die. And just become cold. And without saying a word, it said that he walked over, picked up the ember with his hand and placed it back in the fire and quickly it began to burn brightly again. Brothers and sisters, church family, I don't need you here for me. I want you here for you. I want you to be deeply and intimately involved because in and among God's people, God's power and his mission is present and it makes you able to live in this world and in the midst and on as a part of God's mission. Personal experience of, or I'm sorry, personal distance from Jesus' mission causes doubt if you're doubting today, it might just be because you are distant from God's mission. And it might be because you have a personal view of his mission that he's not fulfilling for you. But it might also be because of a personal experience of Jesus' mission. I mean, we can't look past the fact that John's in prison. Like he's been arrested. He's suffering instead of, instead of thriving in the way that we'd expect. How does that even equate in the view of the gospel that we hold? How does that even, how do we even make those two things match? Jesus coming to fulfill prophecy. John has prophesied about the fact that he's the fulfillment of prophecy, going to fulfill more prophecy. And Jesus himself has proclaimed that I've come to free the captives. But John is in prison. And just so you get the full effect, the rest of the story is that soon John's going to die. He's going to have his head cut off and it's going to be presented on a silver platter. So we got this idea that if we follow Jesus, life gets better. That we get all the things we want. And then when it gets difficult, we face doubt. See, like John, our Our doubts in Jesus are not caused by a lack of blessing from Jesus, but rather because Jesus has given us what we need instead of what we want. Jesus loves you enough not to give you everything you want. He cares for you enough not to give you everything you want. See, Jesus does help. He does does serve us. He does give us power to endure. He does make our lives better. But he also ordains our suffering. He ordains our suffering. That it won't happen in vain. But that good, your good and his glory and the advancement of the gospel come from it. Again, think about why, why would John be arrested? Why would God see fit to put him off in some prison to rot? Isn't he more valuable than that? Isn't he worth more than that? Why would God do that? So that people could see the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God. So that John himself could experience this doubt and be convinced more fully that Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus is the Christ. So that we could read this story today. And see our doubts answered. See, here's the reality is that in in the kingdom of God, in the kingdom of God, the good that comes to us is not deemed good because we say it's good. It's deemed good because God has given it to us. In the kingdom of God, success is not measured in the same way that we measure success in the world. The, The reality is this, is that there is not a moment 
There is not a second of time in which we live today in the kingdom as children of God. There is not a moment, not a step, not an experience, not, not a circumstance, a situation that comes to us that, that we are not walking in grace There is no moment in which we live outside of the grace of God. Sometimes it is the grace we want. And sometimes it's the grace we need. But it is always, it is always, always, always grace. And as his word promises, we experience grace upon grace upon grace. You see, in these three perspectives, that that there's a personal experience of Jesus' mission, a personal view of Jesus' mission, a personal, uh, 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 oh gosh, I forgot the third one, a personal experience, a personal distance from, and a personal view of Jesus' mission. In these three, there's this common theme. It's personal. We make it about us. So before we step to the next part of this sermon, we've got to realize this. At the very heart of why we doubt, the very heart of why we doubt is the truth that more than we trust Jesus, we trust ourselves. We have determined that we are more trustworthy than he. See, all of us doubt to some degree. All of us struggle with this self-doubt, some more, some less, but we all doubt. Now, for a long time in church circles, this has been thought of as, as shameful and reason to hide and, and not be honest about who we are. If John the Baptist doubted, if John the Baptist was prone to doubt, it's time to quit fronting and admit the truth that we are prone to doubt. The truth is doubting, not believing fully in Christ. In, in doubting in Christ, the truth is, it, it's, not a, it's not something to be ashamed of. It just proves that you're human. It proves that you are a sinner in need of a Savior who has met your Savior. Let me, let me just ex- illustrate that for you. Tim Keller in his book, The Reason for God, wrote this. A faith without some doubts is like a human body with no antibodies in it. Our doubts actually protect us to some degree. Because as we have information coming at us, as we have things said to us, if we don't just doubt, then we're going to blindly believe, and that is not what we've been called to. So God has said in the New Testament, we're told by, by Paul, test, the, the, test, the, test everything. Hold on to what is good. Like, doubt it. And test it. Don't just receive it. In some way, our doubts protect us. John MacArthur, writing on this, on this passage, wrote, when the New Testament talks about doubt, whether you're talking about the Gospels or the Epistles, this primarily focuses on believers. That's very important. It is as if you have to believe something before you can doubt it. You have to be committed to it before you can begin to question it. So doubt is held up as the unique problem of the believer. And it's beautiful. It's an expression of what's happening with John. Like John didn't run off looking to the rabbis for answers. He didn't send his people to go find out all the other answers that could be had. He sent them to Jesus. Because ultimately we see that John still trusted Jesus. He didn't trust himself. And he needed to answer. He needed the answer from Jesus. We are not nearly as trustworthy as he is. We are going to doubt him, though. And brothers and sisters, we are able to stand together and fight this together. We know now why we doubt. We know that we're free to doubt. There's no reason to be ashamed of it. Now, how do we defeat this doubt? We've got to read some more verses. And I know you're already thinking, oh, my gosh, there's a whole lot of verses left. We're not going to make it through them all. Let me just read the next two. In that hour, he healed many people. So in response, listen to this, in response to this question, in that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. I'm going to stop that. Plagues, I mean, he healed them of diseases and plagues. Like we've heard of the bubonic plague. We've heard of the black plague. Never heard of the blue plague or the orange plague. He stopped it. I don't know if that's really true or not, but... You've not heard of those plagues, he stopped. <laughs> plagues. Like, he's not messing around. Not just one or two plagues. 
So in that very hour, he healed many people of their diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he didn't just do work. He began to teach them and he said to them, go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Go and tell John. What you have seen and heard, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, leopards are, lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Who's not trapped, who's not cut off, who's not stuck because of me. And John, again, he didn't, he didn't run to a bunch of rabbis. The very first and primary way that we fight doubt is our doubts are undone when we believe Jesus. When we believe him, John didn't seek a bunch of advice. He didn't seek a bunch of different perspectives. He didn't think the rabbis had the answers. He didn't think the the, the people of Rome had the answers. He didn't want to try to figure out any other perspective. He sent two people so that he'd have a, 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 a proper witness. He sends two of his people and he says, hey, you go and you find out for me. Is he the one? Get the answer. He wasn't quick to turn to a bunch of other things. But we, but we, 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 we are, we're not so good at this. We're so quick to trust everything but the, but the living word, Jesus Christ, and the written word, his, his Bible. We are so quick in our modern progressive perspectives to jump on the bandwagon of everybody's opinions. We're so quick to think that, that no, you know, the, the Bible's antiquated. The, the, the design, the instruction, the, the perspectives, the wisdom, and the insight provided in the Word. Well, yes, yeah, antiquated. That's for old days stuff. This is new days. So we come up with our own ideas about marriage and family. And when we struggle in marriage, rather than looking to the Word, we look to some, some worldly wisdom. Raising children. We're more apt, I think, to listen to child psychologists and those people who have all these answers rather than following the instruction given in the Bible. Sexual ethic. There's a whole slew of things that we could address there. Money, wealth, generosity. I mean, the Bible's not just about instruction, but there's plenty of instruction. And we're so quick to listen to the wisdom of the world. And we find ourselves doubting and confused. In fact, we live in a day and age where doubt and confusion and anxiety and depression rule. And yet we keep coming up with these answers that are in rejection of the scriptures. And, and it just seems we're going further and further and further. And everybody has their answers. And nobody will turn to the Christ. You want to fight doubt. You want to defeat your doubt. Believe. Jesus, in fact, this is the key. I'm not, I'm not coming here telling you to do all these things. Just get rid of your doubt. Just quit it. No, believe. Believe, trust Jesus. Our doubts are undone when we believe Jesus. Our doubts are undone when we believe in what Jesus can do by his power in the gospel. You see it. I mean, he's, he's like, hey, by the way, in answer to your question, before I say anything, let me just do some stuff. Like these people are healed, plagues are stopped, blind people are made to see, poor people hear the gospel, at least in this moment, in this instance. They get to experience this power because John's people came and asked this question. Like Jesus might not have been planning to do that. Jesus' disciples show up, ask this question, well, hey, let me just show you. Oh, and by the way, let me not just show you, but let me give you some explanation. I love that Jesus didn't go on a tirade of, I can't believe that, John. He's a weak, he's weak, he's just terrible. What a, I can't believe I chose him to be my forerunner. No, Jesus helps. So doubt, uh, J.C. Ryle commenting on this, he, he writes, doubting does not prove that a man has no faith, but only that his faith is small. And even when our faith is small, the Lord is ready to help us. He doesn't kick us to the curb. He doesn't reject us. He seeks to answer us. He shows us his power, not just any power. He shows us gospel power, not just any gospel, but a gospel that's been being preached and proclaimed by the God of heaven from the time that man and woman sinned and rebelled and fell into that uh, curse. See, this power it's convincing, isn't it? 
The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised. Like who else can do that? You know anybody that can do that stuff? No. He can. Jesus' power is convincing, but not just any power. I mean, it's, it's gospel power. Like this is, this is, is power to, to restore and redeem. This is not power bringing destruction and mayhem. I mean, Jesus didn't walk into these villages and preach and teach the gospel and then start striking people down and cutting people off at the knees and, and causing plagues. He didn't do that. His power was good. It was gospel oriented. It was, it was a holy, righteous God who, who had every right to destroy, providing an opportunity for restoration and redemption. He's putting things back together. And not just any gospel power, but the gospel that God proclaimed when he said that there's one coming that would dis- defeat the serpent. That, that, that later he said, as he entered into covenants with people, that one would come that would make this a reality. The, the, the prophecy that was even in Isaiah the, the, the prophecy that Jesus is making reference to as he says that the, that the sick are healed, the, 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 the uh, lame are, are, are walk, and he, as he's making reference to that, as he's making reference to prophecies given by Isaiah, Isaiah 61, Isaiah 54, I think it is. I mean, go look it up. This is, this is what God has always been about doing. It was the prophecy that he gave to John when he said, John, go out and be the forerunner of the Christ. The one who is to come, you're going to identify him. It was the prophecy that was made real the day that Jesus put on flesh to dwell among us and live with us and serve us and suffer on our behalf. And it's the prophecy that will be ultimately fulfilled when he comes in glory. Jesus was the one to come and he is the one that is coming again. You see, our doubts are undone when we are able to believe in what Jesus has done by his power in the gospel. And in defeating and undoing doubt, we are not calling you to just quit doubting. How unfriendly, how uncompassionate would that be? We're trying to present to you, Jesus, a trustworthy Savior, I'm trying to stand beside Luke and offer you a Savior worthy of faith. We gather every week And we sing songs of the beauty and the majesty of a Savior worth trusting. Even this morning, our songs have been believing these things. But there's one more thing I want you to see in verses 24 through 28. When John's messengers had gone... So Jesus gives them an answer there to go back and and help John fight doubt. You see the community fighting doubt together. When John's messengers had gone, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? He's asking, did you go out to see a guy with no conviction? Did you go out to see a guy who shifts with popular thought and popular culture? Did you go out to see a guy who can't take a stand, who has no backbone? No. What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing. Soft clothing would be like fancy clothes. Behold, those who are dressed in splendid clothing and live in luxury are kings in courts. You don't go out to the desert. You don't go out to the wilderness to see a guy all dressed up and snazzy in a suit. Like you're not going out there to see some guy that's popular and rich and and fancy. What then, he says in verse 26, what then did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes. Yes, a, a prophet. We went out to see a prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send the messenger, or I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. He is commenting on John. He is saying, John is the one chosen of God who'd come to prophesy and prepare the way for him. He is saying, He is the one. But it gets bigger, it gets better. I tell you, he says in verse 28, I tell you, among those Born of women, none is greater than John. What a compliment. I mean, the, the, the king of kings, the, the God of power, the, the, the Messiah who's doing these works is saying, yes, he's a prophet and a very special prophet. But he's not just any prophet. I mean, he's the one come before me. 
But more than that, he is greater than every other man born of woman. That's a compliment. Like if you're going to get a compliment, that's the kind of compliment you're looking for, right? I mean, Jesus had plenty of amazing things to say about John. And the people knew it. The people would agree with him on it. That's why they were following him in droves. But Jesus didn't quit talking when he finished talking about John. See, Jesus had one other thing to say in light of that. I tell you, verse 28, I tell you, among those born of women, none is greater than John. Yet, contrast, yet the one who is least in the kingdom, like the the guy that lives in the gutter in the kingdom of God, right? That the one who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. You know who he's talking about? You and me. The people that have believed in the Christ. See, our doubts are undone when we believe in what Jesus says about who we are. Do you believe that he looks at you and considers you great? That he looks at you and says, you are my child, fully loved and fully accepted? Do you look at yourself in comparison to John the Baptist or Paul the Apostle and think, oh man, I'm not, God just barely letting me get by? You are great in the economy of God. You have received his full blessing. You are fully loved on a scale of one to ten, one being the frowny face that you're completely just ticking him off and he's just barely dealing with you to being ten, the full smile, maybe five is like that mediocre, you know, just. In God's economy, you're on a ten. Do you believe that? He loves you. He is not displeased with you. He doesn't look at you and think, oh man, I can't believe it. But when you face that doubt, when you struggle with that faith, he seeks to help you. He seeks to serve you. He seeks to convince you. Look, this is huge. This is massive. It starts, it, it, it starts with this doubting who God is and, 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 and who Jesus is and doubting what he's come to do and what he's capable of. It, it starts in doubting his mission. But it continues into a doubt of who we are. Just imagine the logical extension, and this is a logical extension, it's kind of a, kind of a push. But by doubting who Jesus was, who was John also doubting? himself. Because if Jesus isn't the one to come, who have I been telling people about and am I doing what I'm supposed to be doing? See, our identity in Christ, our identities are so woven together with his, we can't doubt Christ without doubting ourselves also, but as we are made confident in Christ, we can live confident in this life and have confidence in the life to come. But listen, this doubt is spiderwebs into every area of our life. It starts outside of the kingdom of God. People doubt that they're totally sinful. They doubt that they are apart from him, that they're totally incapable of getting to him. They doubt that they need a savior. They doubt that they're ever wrong and need to repent of anything. They're, they're, they're doubting. But having then come in, having been brought in, being convinced and being able to begin to believe, we have this doubt that looks on it looks on him looking on us and we doubt his approval and pleasure in us. We doubt that we are as valuable to him as he says. We doubt the greatness and the great privilege that we have been given by him as members, as citizens of and children of his kingdom. We doubt it. There's no need to doubt it anymore. Christ has 
come. God came to you. He put on flesh and He lived here and He suffered in your place for your sins. He did this work so that you could have the hope of heaven. If you believe that, there is no reason to worry. There is no season of doubt that's necessary. Brothers and sisters, gain confidence in the Christ that is. That you can be confident in the life that is and is to come. That is how we see our doubt undone. And there is so much more. I've got to stop. We're already way over. But please, please hear me. As you face doubt, the reasons, the reasons are important to deal with. So deal with the reasons that you doubt. But be free from the shame that comes with doubt. You are surrounded by doubters and doubting Thomases and doubting Johns and doubting Seths. Jesus has given us a way to see that doubt defeated. So let's, brothers and sisters, work on it together as we look to the Savior who has given us reason to be confident. Let's pray. God, you are so gracious and merciful and compassionate and full of, of, of blessing for us. Thank you. Thank you. You are eternal, complete in and of yourself, and yet you consider us You meet us at the point of need. You serve us in our need. Strengthen us. Encourage us. Enable us to walk. Walk in confidence. Setting aside doubt. For our good, for your glory, and for the advancement of the gospel. Thank you, Jesus. These things I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.